all be seated. Please don't stand the whole time. That'd be uncomfortable for you. Uh, if you guys have been with us for a while, you know that we have been walking through the upper room discourse, uh, which is, is a fancy saying of really the last conversation, last long conversation Jesus has with his disciples prior to the cross, prior to him walking to his death. And so today, as Hannah just read, we're going to be looking into John 16, verses 16 through 24. The summer going into my seventh grade year, uh, I had an awesome opportunity with my family uh, to drive down to California, and we got to spend a week in the happiest place on earth. We got to spend a week in Disneyland. Um, and the first time I'd ever gone there, I was a really little kid. So kind of being a seventh grader, you actually can go on all the rides based on your height um, and able to just enjoy all that they have to offer there. And it was an amazing week that I was so full of joy throughout that whole week. Um, awesome experience. And we drove back. Uh, my family's one, well, I was, I'm one of four kids, so six of us. So flying was never an option. So we always just drove everywhere we went and drove back to my house. And the first thing I wanted to do when I got home was walk two doors down uh, to see my best friend, Tori, and tell her of my experience of this joy-filled week where I'm like, it was the happiest place on earth. It was crazy. And Tori was, this has been my best friend since I was five years old, um, and we did everything together. And so I remember running down to her house after I got back and start telling her about all the cool things I did. Just my face was lit up, and I was stoked. Um, and... She, she was excited, but I could tell something was wrong as I'm kind of sharing with her. Uh, and, and in that moment, you know, she, she took my joy and my excitement, um, but then she, she kind of stopped, and she's like, well, I have to tell you something. Uh, she's like, um, my family's, we're, we're moving. And I remember in, in that moment, this, this joy, this cloud nine experience I had been on just crumbled. I fell right through that cloud. My best friend was going to be leaving within a few months and going, luckily it wasn't super far away, but to a seventh grader, you know, two and a half hours, you're like, you might as well be two and a half million years away from me. And, and the struggle I had, just the, the sorrow, honestly, that I felt of being like, oh, my best friend is leaving me. Just the pain and, and, and the weight. But you see, this morning, we get to step into to a text that addresses joy. And Jesus directly speaks into sorrow and mourning. Yet in this moment, he doesn't speak of the absence of joy. He doesn't speak of the depletion of it. Rather, he says that in the midst of sorrow and suffering, joy will be present. My joy will be present. You see, for Jesus, it's not the absence of joy, but it's actually the presence of joy. We're going to look this morning how the fact that the joy of the Lord is inevitable and immovable. No one can take away the joy of the Lord from you. What an amazing message that we get to step into this morning. And we're going to look at it within three categories. We're going to look at the promise of joy, the structure of joy, and then ultimately the growth of joy. And so to begin, look at this promise of joy 
the reality that God says, hey, you will have joy. <clears throat> as Hannah just read, we, we enter into a text uh, that is kind of a mouthful as you start to read it, because it's like a little while is said every little while. It just continually comes time and time again. And so we step in to the text in the middle of a discussion that the disciples are having, uh, which if you guys have been with us for the last weeks, you realize that pretty much every week, the disciples are like, hey, we don't get it. Wait, why, why are you leaving? I don't understand what's going on. And so this, this is just continual story. And so Jesus steps in in the midst of this, and we see in verse 19 that Jesus knew that they, had, that they had wanted to ask him. And so they said to him, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. And so Jesus steps into the midst of their conversation and says, hey, so you, so you want to know what, what I'm talking about when I, when I use this statement. I mean, and as we've, we've realized that oftentimes when Jesus says something, there's much more behind just what is the surface answer. There's so much depth to this. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to know what the answer is. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, truly, truly, which anytime he says that, you hone in on this. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then in 22, he also says, and so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. So what is Jesus talking about this little while? Because as you realize, he doesn't really clearly say what a little while refers to. But again, we know the context of what he's been talking about and we know where he is headed to the cross. And so in this moment, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. In a little while, you no longer will see me because in that cross, I will bear the weight of the world but, and I will die. You will, you will not see me. But in a little while, you will see me because we know that the end of the story is not in the grave. For we know that three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, defeated death. And in a little while, you will see me. See, Christ is saying, hey, when I die, you are going to weep and lament. You are going to feel sorrow. We even see that in, in the Gospels of even hiding from Jesus, being embarrassed to be a follower of Jesus in those moments. They're weeping and lamenting. But he says the world will rejoice. And just think about the scene in front of Pilate where the crowds are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. They get what they want. Yet Jesus' small band of brothers don't. Yet we know that that is not the end of the story. Because Jesus says that your sorrows will turn into joy. Why? Because like I said, the grave cannot hold him down. The grave cannot hold Jesus down. And he says, you will see me again. And when you do, you will be full of joy. Not only does Jesus say this here, but we actually see this lived out a few chapters later. In John 20, 20, this is the first time the disciples actually see him. 
And he says, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad or overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He says, when you see me, you will be full of joy. Four chapters later, they see him ecstatic, glad, full of joy. So what is the outcome for the believer with Christ's resurrection? It says right here in 22, verse 22, your hearts will rejoice. The resurrected Lord is what brings his disciples joy. And the beauty is Jesus says, your hearts will rejoice. He doesn't say, hey, some of you, those that are like more on the emotional side, you know, those that like when a sad movie comes, you like kind of cry, you might like hide it, but you cry. You guys are gonna rejoice. No, he says, all of you, you will rejoice. And in the middle of these statements, in the middle of 20 and 22, he uses an illustration to drive home this point. It really just hones in on this promise of joy. In 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I have to be honest with you guys. I honestly don't know much about giving birth. Shocking, I know, right? And I'm never actually going to be the one that gives birth. But I do know a few things about birth. And the main thing I know is that when you're going into labor, that kid's coming. No matter what you want to do, you can't go on vacation. That kid is coming. You see, my wife is pregnant. She's 23 weeks pregnant. She's due at the end of June. Our baby's due on the 28th, um, and my birthday is July 3rd. I selfishly don't want it to be born on my birthday. But what if I was like, hey, Anna, you know what? You're going to labor right now on the 28th, but I would really love us to share the same birthday, so could you just wait for five days? <laughs> like, come on, right? Or you know what? Hey, your birthday is July 27th. Why don't you just wait a month? Like, how cool would that be? You know, mom and daughter, same birthday. Like, think about all the cute tea parties you could have. You know, she's just going to slap me in the face and probably kick me out of the room. You see, when labor is happening, that kid is coming. See, just as the baby is inevitable, Jesus is saying that joy is inevitable. Jesus is saying that when you actually meet me and when you see me, you will have joy. As we saw in, in John 20, verse 20. Ultimately, saying, hey, you, you can't be a Christian without joy. Christianity and joy go hand in hand. Joy is not optional. Tim Keller even says that the very essence of faith, there has to be a kernel of joy, or it's not faith. There has to be a kernel of joy. Again, he's not saying, hey, there's got to be a whole thing, a popcorn of joy, but he's saying there's got to be at least a kernel of it to be faith. And ultimately, joy is central to the gospel. The gospel isn't the gospel without joy. As you know, when Jesus was born, we've probably heard this many times through Christmas, uh, the angels proclaimed, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, no good news of great joy. 
that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You know, we know the gospel equals good news, and that good news leads to joy. So ultimately, the gospel is joy news. It's news of joy. You cannot divorce the two. And so what, is, what does this promise of joy mean for us? I mean, simply put, it means that joy is possible in the life of a believer. Joy is possible, but not only possible, he says, like this child, it is inevitable. And Paul, Paul uses this idea in so much of his writing. We think about in, in Philippians where he says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, it's not like Paul's trying to say, hey, I'm trying to force your feelings. You might not be feeling it, but just, just hey, rejoice. Like, life sucks, but rejoice. No, he's, he's not giving us something that's impossible to do. He's saying, hey, you can do this. Rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Joy is inevitable in our lives. And so the question is, if we're lacking joy, what, what, what does that mean? And I think so often we say, hey, I'm lacking joy, and we turn it into a God issue. But the reality is, the lack of joy is never, never a God issue. Because God is joy. God can never lack joy. See, I think we can think of joy kind of like a tree. And a tree is going to be, through, be out through all seasons. And we know that there's the seasons where spring comes, and all of a sudden the trees start budding and there's just this huge beauty. And summer, you get to enjoy the lavishness of, of the flowers. But then fall and winter come. And so I realized that in life, just like this tree, there are seasons. But I think so often we say, oh, well, I'm in a winter season, so I don't, I don't need joy or I don't experience joy. But the reality is, to use this, the tree, the tree is growing year round. The tree doesn't say, hey, it's winter, okay, I'm just dying for a little bit. And then it's spring and I pop back up. No, it's saying the reality is it's growing constantly. And so for us, even in the midst of winter seasons, like, we can grow in joy. Joy is possible. So if, if you're lacking joy, I encourage you to ask yourself these two questions. Number one, what comparatively small thing are you doing to keep you from seeing what you have in Jesus? What comparatively small thing are you doing to keep you from seeing what you have in Jesus? Because that's at the heart of it. It's a comparatively small thing that we focus on in light of who we are in Christ. If we see the magnified, glorified Christ and we say, hey, I'm with him. Then, then the things that we lack joy in are going to be small in comparison to who we are in Christ. Or number two, what comparatively small thing are you so upset about that it's keeping you from seeing what you have in Jesus? Because again, maybe it's not something that you're doing, but it's something that's going on in your life. But we look at the, the magnitude of what Christ has done compared to the minuteness of, of what our experiences are, 
and we see that Christ far outweighs the circumstances of life. God promises us joy. But he also shows us kind of what the structure of joy is going to be like. What does it actually kind of look like? Where does this joy come from? And you see, in a way, Christian joy, the joy of a believer, kind of looks similar to, to other kinds of joy. Because I think we really we rejoice and find joy in what is, what is beautiful. You know, I think one of my favorite places to go when I'm on the coast that really does bring me joy um, is a place that my family's just kind of coined God's finger. Because it's got this long, narrow cliff that kind of sticks out into the ocean. Um, and there's going out on the edge of it and just seeing the beauty of God's creation. And, and the thing so often with, with joy is you find joy in the thing for what it is, not the th- for what it can give you. I mean, I'm there and I'm in awe of the view, but this rock has never given me anything. I'm not at it for a means to an end. See, true, real, authentic joy, you don't actually want the thing to give you anything. You simply find it beautiful for what it is. It's an end in itself. Yet if you're like me, so often we pursue joys that ultimately are fleeting or self-beneficial. I think of the joys that we put into relationship, where I just put everything I am into my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my friends, and how they're doing ultimately affects how I'm doing. Or joy in my material possessions, that, hey, come check out my sweet Nissan Sentra, right? You know, hopefully it's not that, because you find joy in a lot of weird things if it's your Nissan Sentra. But it's the material possession. Look at my house, the joy that we have in that. Or just joy in success. Be like, hey, I'm going to be that person that I'm going to get a 4.0 throughout all my college experience. I want to have some little things to wrap around my neck when I walk across stage. Or success in the workplace to say, hey, I'm always trying to improve for that next promotion, that next benefit. Or for a lot of you that are, that are in the, the college age, it's joy comes in really the dreams of the future. Like, well, I might not be joyful now, but when I get that job, when I get that wife, when I get that house, when I get that 2.5 kids, like that means my life will be worth it. But the reality is when we put our joy in these things, we realize how fragile joy actually is. What happens when your relationships crumble? What happens when your girlfriend leaves you? What happens when your little kid walks away from the faith or just says, hey, I don't really want anything to do with you. I'm 18, I'm moving out. What happens when day after day you just find out, oh, my furnace just broke. Oh, I need a new stove. I need a new oven. These kind of things that just just permeate in life. What happens when you realize, oh, I'm not actually successful in school like I thought I was. Or you're going for that four point and you get an A minus and so all of a sudden you got a 3.7 instead of a 4.0. Right? The weight, that's a whole other story. <clears throat> or the joys of dreams of the future. What if as you get to your future, you realize that those dreams are not a reality? It's so easy to have joy in those mom- moments crumble. But again, there's, there's a beauty in this passage because God is saying here, hey, joy is not the absence of pain. And I think that's what we so often say, hey, if I'm feeling hurt, if I'm feeling pain, joy cannot exist. And so therefore I feel pain, I lack joy. 
Yet in this passage, in, this, in the illustration that Jesus gives of this woman giving birth, that idea is far from it. You know, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But then when she's delivered her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Notice that line, she no longer remembers her anguish. She no longer remembers her pain. But the reality is he doesn't say, hey, she no longer experiences pain. He doesn't say the pain is gone. He just says that in light of this child that was born, she doesn't remember that pain. You know, what mom's like, just had a kid, and she's like, wasn't worth it. Nobody. <laughs> nobody, you know? Like, oh, dang it, that was like a waste of 12 hours of my life. Like, nobody says that. And they're still hurting. There's still pain. I mean, think about it. Some moms have their stomach cut open. The other one is all another messy thing. And the reality is both those are super painful. And that just doesn't leave as soon as the kid comes. But the reality is, is because of their kid, because of who they, they focus on, they can get through those moments. And that's ultimately the structure of joy. And a joy that is not fleeting, but a joy that is constant, is you say, hey, Jesus is the one that I put my joy in. Jesus is the one that I put my hope in. So that as circumstances come, as pain comes in my life, I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on Jesus that is constant, that is eternal, that is in his very essence, joy. You see, Christian joy can coexist with suffering. And I've very much experienced this in my own life. Um, I have an older sister that she's been gone for the last two years overseas um, serving the Lord. And it's, it's super awesome. But I still remember the night before she left. Um, it was a very messy night in my household as far as emotions go. And there was this true sorrow and weeping in my household. I remember me and my brother sang the song, Sister Don't Let Go. And you're just like, I don't know why we sang that song. It was a mess. But the reality is like, that's like our heart of like, we don't like, we don't want you to go because we feel the pain of like, hey, you're really close. You have our, our only niece. Like we feel the weight of that. But at the same time, like we could rejoice because after we sing that song, we sing worship songs and we pray for them because we also have joy that they're going to proclaim truth to a nation that needs Jesus. You see, joy and sorrow can coexist, especially when our joy rests in someone that is unchangeable, but that is constant and real. And then in 22, he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I, I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. As I said, this started out really confusing as there was all these a little whiles. And the interesting thing to see is he always says a little while and you, a little while and you, a little while and you. It's always you will see me, you will see me, you will see me. And then Jesus in this moment, he switches it. And instead of you will see me, he says, and I will see you. I will see you. See, Jesus pointedly switches this phrasing to emphasize that Jesus seeing us who we are in Jesus is far more foundational to our relationship than the fact that we see Jesus. Because when Jesus sees us, we identify with him. We are his. 
Jesus seeing us, knowing us, is attached to the one that brings us joy. You see, the structure of Christian joy is not located in your greatest joy and beauty. And, I mean, your, your greatest Christian joy is located in your greatest beauty and, and, and beauty and, oh my gosh, and joy in, in God. You see, so, so when you have found your greatest joy and greatest beauty in God, then that far surpasses the joy and beauty of the world. Far surpasses it. You see, our worldly circumstances do not dictate our joy. Rather, it's our heavenly circumstances that stamp it, that say, this is joy for you. You see, the joy of Jesus, the joy that Jesus is talking about is, is not, it's, it's a joy given, not a joy achieved. You see, so often in our life, we pursue these things that it's achieved joy. When I reach this, I'm going to feel joy. When I purchase this, I'm going to feel joy. When I have this relationship, I'm going to feel joy. It's us achieving it. And so therefore, so often it's fleeting because we have to keep it. But yet in the joy that comes from the Lord, it's an achieved, I mean, it's not an achieved joy, but it's a given joy by God. And God ultimately is the one that achieved it through his son, Jesus. You see, it's for joy that Jesus went to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For the joy set before him. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of Jesus, that through his death, he ends up defeating death, rises again. And it's the resurrected Lord that speaks of this joy and says, hey, when I rise, you will have joy because you will be mine. You will be with my children. I just bought you with a price. My very body, my very blood was that price paid for you. And it's through that that I say, come, have joy, a joy that is not fleeting, a joy that does not leave you. See, because we are made alive in Christ, we take on his identity, we take on his joy. The resurrection is saturated in joy. The gospel is saturated in joy. There is no joy without the gospel. There is no gospel without joy. You see, no one can take this joy from you as he says, hey, no one's going to take this joy. No one can take this joy from you. Because no one can take Christ. You know, the world thought that, hey, we're going to kill this man and it's going to be end. It's going to be the end of it. We know that three days later, Christ rose from the grave. And because he rose, he defeated death. He is not of this world. So therefore, no, nothing this world has to offer, nothing this world can do can take away Christ who is not of this world. And so we, as a relationship with God, get to step into this joy of Christ that is not of this world. And so therefore, this world cannot take it. Our worldly circumstances no longer play into this reality of joy. See, the structure of Christian joy is that you've located your beauty. You've relocated your joy in God. You look to God in the midst of circumstances instead of the world to circumstances. 
And because of that, these worldly circumstances have no weight on your life. They can't control you because the joy of the Lord is eternal. The joy of the Lord is sufficient. So my question, is God beautiful to you? Do you actually think God is beautiful? Is Jesus beautiful to you? Is Jesus the most beautiful thing you've ever set your eyes upon? And if no, start shifting your eyes towards him. I mean, this very book is the love story that God wrote to his people, that he wrote to us. And as we step into this, we see the beauty of God. We see the beauty of Jesus. And as we step into that, like I can guarantee you, you will find joy. Because this book, the person of God, is joy. So now the growth of joy. How do, how do we maintain this? How do we move forward and grow in our ability for joy? See, we've seen Jesus promise us joy, and he gives us glimpses of what joy looks like. But to grow in it, he says in 24, 23 and 24, in that day when I'm back, he says, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in my name, I mean, in the, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So you probably have a couple questions that just pop up through that. The first is, what does it actually mean to ask in Jesus' name? Uh, Piper, John Piper, pastor, he illustrates this well, and he says, the reason we pray in Jesus' name and not our own is because we have no right to anything good from God apart from what Jesus has done for us in taking away our sins and providing us with a robe of righteousness that God finds acceptable. See, we come to God through Christ. Christ is our mediator. We know that it's true of our salvation, just as we know that that is true of our supplication, of when we actually go and ask things of God. In 2007, a boy from Iceland got this great idea that he was going to call uh, the president of the United States, uh, President Bush. And he came up with this master plan of, hey, I'm going to call the president by pretending to be the president of Iceland. And so he decides to call this secret number that he thought would get him directly to the Oval Office, because there is a number that exists just like that. And I guess his number was a little wrong, so he ends up calling a facility that's right next to the Oval Office. And so he calls the security, security command post, and he starts going through several people on the phone. They answer the phone, you know, he says who he is, um, and they start to ask him, ask him questions. Okay, well, if this is who you are, then, you know, what's your middle name? What's your date of birth? Where were you born? When did you take office? All these questions to make sure that this man is actually the president of Iceland. And for some reason, through, through Wikipedia and through Internet, he's able to get really far along this process, which is very scary. <laughs> and ultimately, he gets to, like, the secretary for the president. And they're like, hey, sorry, Bush isn't available right now, uh, but, like, he'll, he'll call you back soon. And I'm like, what? He's, like, stoked. He's like, okay, Bush is going to call me back. Little did you know, like, ten minutes later, police show up at his door, 
and end up interrogating for two hours to figure out what this number is that he called, how he got this information. I, I say that, though, because our relationship with Jesus, Jesus is that number that gets us into the Oval Office. Jesus is the number in which when we talk to Jesus, when we say in Jesus' name, we're using that number to get to God to get to the very God of the universe, feel the weight of that. And praying in Jesus' name gives us access to the Father God, the creator of the universe. An English biblical scholar uh, by the name of H.B. Sweet, he said, the name of Christ is both the passport by which the disciples may earn access into the chamber of God and the medium through which the divine answer comes. So by praying in Jesus' name, we get access to the Father. But then he goes on and he says, you know, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given. So what does whatever actually mean? You know, is Jesus just this genie that we kind of rub him and say, hey, like, I want a new car. Thank you. I want an A on this test. Thank you. I want a really cute wife. Thank you. Oh, three witches are done. You're done. No. Like so often I think we come in and we just say, hey, here's my laundry list of things, God. And I want all these things. Just give it to me. Because, yeah, you said whatever you ask in my name. Because I was like, at the end I said, in the name of Jesus, amen. So therefore, like it's good to go, right? No, we realize that this is not the first time that Jesus has said, hey, pray in my name or has used this kind of language. We see already in the upper room discourse, in John 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Or John 15, 7 through 8, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the aim of our prayers, the aim of this whatever, is that God may be glorified. And be glorified in Jesus. The glory of God qualifies the whatever that Jesus speaks of. Again, Piper says prayer exists like everything else to show that God is supremely glorious. Therefore, any prayer that does not imply hallowed be thy name as the main desire has no claim on this verse. So as we go to God, as we Pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is saying, hey, with that whatever, the heart, the things that God wants to answer, the things that bring glory to his name. And what's the last thing that Jesus says? He says, ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So again, ask, but we realize it's not just an asking for whatever, that whatever constitutes, ask for things that bring glory to God. And you will receive. And what, what is ultimately ask, receive? What is that equal? What do you receive out of that? That your joy may be full. You see, the fullness of joy in our life, the growth of joy in our life, comes from the glory of God. Comes from glorifying God. As we glorify God more with our lives, we will experience the joy of God. We will experience that. The growth of joy comes through God. 
And so what, what, what is this, this glory of God? How do we actually go forward and do that? It ultimately comes down to acting and feeling and thinking in ways that reflect God's goodness. How am I living my life today that points to Christ over myself? How am I living in my life today that I'm saying, hey, I'm actually carrying my cross today for you, Lord? What does that look like in the classroom study? Maybe that means speaking up when somebody says something that's completely against who God is. Or maybe that actually means just speaking to your friends about who God is and bringing glory to God through the proclamation of his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. Glory to God also means loving on your children in the way that God has called us to love them. And even last week, we saw how pivotal the Spirit plays in this, in this role. The Spirit plays a pivotal role in glorifying Jesus. So that's the beauty of this whole reality, is that we can grow in glorifying God because we have the Spirit within us. And we know that even the Spirit, as he says, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, the second thing he says is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And the fruit of the Spirit wants to glorify Jesus. That's his heart. That's his passion. That's his desire. So as we have him, as we are in tune with the Spirit, we glorify God. And so my last question to leave you with is, what does that look like in your life? How are you acting, feeling, and thinking in which it's focused on the goodness of God? Where are we saying, hey, I'm putting God above the, these aspects of my life? I know if you're anything like me during my college years, it was easy to put God on the back burner for school. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll get to you later. But is that acting, feeling, and thinking for the goodness of God? You see, God has called us into a joy that is inevitable. We know it's coming. And a joy that is immovable, that no matter what, he says, this joy is going to stay within you because we have Christ so I encourage you that in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of worldly pains and sorrows, of family leaving, as friends leaving, as school not going the way you want it, as finances not going the way you want it, to instead of looking at the circumstances of the world, we look to the circumstances of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. Because in light of that, we can get through this even if it's painful, enjoy. No one can take the inevitable joy away from us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the king of joy. That the very essence of who you are is joy. And that for the joy set before us, set before you, you went to the cross that through that, Lord, we can ultimately step into a relationship with you and have a relationship with joy itself. That joy now is in our hearts. Lord, that song that we all grew up singing, we got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Lord, may that be a reality in our lives. And God, I pray that we will be people that look to who we are in you 
and the concreteness in that, the joy in that you died for us, that you rose again, that you have given us life, Lord, that that may be the outlook in which we look at our current circumstances. That may be the lens in which we look at what life has given us. Because in that, Lord, we can still find joy in the midst of sorrow. We can still find joy in the midst of suffering. Because you are joy. In your name. Amen.